Hello. Welcome to the Bore You to Sleep podcast. The podcast that will hopefully help you get to sleep. I am going to read an open source book, one that is not particularly interesting, but one that is hopefully boring enough to get you to sleep. Tonight's reading comes from The Call of the Wild by Jack London. Published in 1903, this book explores the Canadian wilderness in the late 1800s. My name is Teddy, and I aim to help people everywhere get a good night's rest. Sleep is so important, and my mission is to help you get the rest that you need. This podcast is designed to play in the background while you slowly fall asleep. Thank you to everyone who shared their words of gratitude with me during the week. Thank you to Sanda Ball for your lovely message through the website. I'm glad you enjoyed the bread episode. Thank you to Eric for your lovely message through the website. Don't worry, Eric. I don't plan to stop bringing out episodes anytime soon. Thank you also to Matt Wilmot for your lovely comment on Twitter. For all other listeners out there who find the podcast beneficial, I have a favour to ask you. Please leave a review and comment in iTunes, or leave the show a rating in Spotify. If you would like, you can also say hello at boytosleep.com, where you can support the podcast. I'm also on Twitter and Instagram at Boy to Sleep. You can find me on Facebook by searching Boy to Sleep Podcast. In the meantime, lie back, relax, and enjoy the readings. The Call of the Wild by Jack London Chapter 1 Into the Primitive Buck did not read the newspapers, or he would have known that trouble was brewing, not alone for himself, but for every tired water dog, strong of muscle, and with warm, long hair, from Puget Sound to San Diego. Because men, groping in the Arctic darkness, had found a yellow metal, and because steamship and transportation companies were booming the find, thousands of men were rushing into the Northland. These men wanted dogs, and the dogs they wanted were heavy dogs, with strong muscles by which to toil, and furry coats to protect them from the frost. Buck lived at a big house in the sun-kissed Santa Clara Valley. Judge Miller's place, it was called. It stood back from the road, half hidden among the trees, through which glimpses could be caught of the wide, cool veranda that ran around its four sides. The house was approached by gravel driveways, which wound about through wide spreading lawns 
and under the interlacing bows and tall poplars. At the rear, things were on even a more spacious scale than at the front. There were great stables, where a dozen grooms and boys held forth, rows of vine-clad servants' cottages, an endless and orderly array of outhouses, long grape arbours, green pastures, orchids and berry patches. Then there was the pumping plant for the artesian well, and the big cement tank where Judge Miller's boys took their morning plunge and kept cool in the hot afternoon. And over this great demence Buck ruled. Here he was born, and here he had lived the four years of his life. It was true, there were other dogs. There could not be other dogs on so vast a place. But they did not count. They came and went, resided in the populous kennels, or lived obscurely in the recesses of the house, after the fashion of Toots, the Japanese pug, or Yasbel, the Mexican hairless, strange creatures that rarely put nose out of doors or set foot to ground. On the other hand, there were the fox terriers, a score of them at least, who yelped fearful promises at Toots and Isabel, looking out of the windows at them, and protected by a legion of housemaids, armed with brooms and mops. But Buck was neither house dog nor kennel dog. The whole realm was his. He plunged into the swimming tank or went hunting with the judge's sons. He escorted Molly and Alice, the judge's daughters, on long twilight or early morning rambles. On wintry nights he lay at the judge's feet before the roaring library fire. He carried the judge's grandsons on his back or rolled them in the grass and guarded their footsteps through wild adventures down to the fountain in the stable yard and even beyond where the paddocks were and even the berry patches among the terriers he stalked imperiously, and Toots and Yezbel he utterly ignored, for he was king, king over all creeping, crawling, flying things of Judge Miller's place, humans included. His father, Almo, a huge Saint Bernard, had been the judge's inseparable companion, a buck bid fair to follow in the way of his father. He was not so large, he weighed only 140 pounds, for his mother, Shep, had been a Scotch shepherd dog. Nevertheless, 140 pounds to which was added, 
the dignity that comes of good living and universal respect enabled him to carry himself in right royal fashion. During the four years since his puppyhood, he had lived the life of a sated aristocrat. He had a fine pride in himself, was even a trifle egotistical, as country gentlemen sometimes become because of their insular situation. But he had saved himself by not becoming a mere pampered house dog. Hunting and kindred outdoor delights had kept down the fat and hardened his muscles. And to him, as to the cold tubbing races, the love of water had been a tonic and a health preserver. And this was the manner of Dogbuck in the fall of 1897, when the Klondike strike dragged men from all the world into the frozen north. But Buck did not read the newspapers, and he did not know the manual. One of the gardener's helpers was an undesirable acquaintance. Manuel had one besetting sin. He loved to play Chinese lottery. Also in his gambling, he had one besetting weakness, faith in a system. And this made his damnation certain, for to play a system requires money while the wages of a gardener's helper do not lap over the needs of a wife and numerous progeny. The judge was at a meeting of the Raisin Growers Association, and the boys were busy organising an athletic club on the memorable night of Manuel's treachery. No one saw him and Buck go off through the orchard on what Buck imagined was merely a stroll, and with the exception of a solitary man, no one saw them arrive at the little flag station known as College Park. This man talked with Manuel, and money chinked between them. You might wrap up the goods before you deliver them, the stranger said gruffly, and Manuel doubled a piece of stout rope around Buck's neck under the collar. Twist it and you'll choke, said Manuel, and the stranger grunted a ready affirmative. Buck had accepted the rope with quiet dignity. To be sure... It was an unwanted performance, but he had learned to trust in men he knew and to give them the credit for a wisdom that outreached his own. But when the ends of the rope were placed in the stranger's hands, he growled menacingly. He had merely intimated his displeasure, in his pride believing to intimate was to command. But to his surprise, the rope tightened around his neck, shutting off his breath. 
In quick rage he sprang at the man who met him halfway, grappled him close by the throat, and with a deft twist threw him on his back. Then the rope tightened mercilessly, while Buck struggled in a fury, his tongue lolling out of his mouth and his great chest panting futilely. Never in all his life had he been so vilely treated, and never in all his life had he been so angry. But his strength ebbed, his eyes glazed, and he knew nothing when the train was flagged and the two men threw him into the baggage car. The next he knew, he was dimly aware that his tongue was hurting, and that he was being jolted along in some kind of conveyance. The hoarse shriek of a locomotive whistling a crossing told him where he was. He had travelled too often with the judge not to know the sensation of riding in a baggage car. He opened his eyes and into them came an unbridled anger of a kidnapped king. The man sprang for his throat, but Buck was too quick for him. His jaws closed on the hand, nor did they relax till his senses were choked out of him once more. Yep, has fits, the man said, hiding his mangled hand from the baggage man, who had been attracted by the sounds of the struggle. I'm taking him up for the boss to Frisco. A crack dog doctor there thinks that he can cure him. Concerning that night's ride, the man spoke most eloquently for himself in a little shed back of a saloon on the San Francisco waterfront. All I get is fifty for it, he grumbled and I wouldn't do it over for a thousand cold cash. His hand was wrapped in a bloody handkerchief, and the right trouser leg was ripped from knee to ankle. How much did the other mug get the saloon keeper demanded? A hundred was the reply. Wouldn't take a solace to help me. That makes a hundred and fifty, the saloon keeper calculated, and he's worth it, or I'm a square head. The kidnapper undid the bloody wrappings and looked at his lacerated hand. If I don't get the hydrophobia, it'll be because you were born to hang, laughed the saloon keeper. Here, lend me a hand before you pull your freight, he added. Dazed, suffering, intolerable pain from throat and tongue, with the life half-throttled out of him, Buck attempted to face his tormentors. But he was thrown down and choked repeatedly, till they succeeded in defiling the heavy brass collar off his neck. Then the rope was removed, and he was flung into a cage-like crate. There he lay for the remainder of the weary night, 
nursing his wrath and wounded pride. He could not understand what it all meant. What did they want with him, these strange men? Why were they keeping him pent up in this narrow crate? He did not know why, but he felt oppressed by the vague sense of impending calamity. Several times during the night he sprang to his feet when the shed door rattled open, expecting to see the judge or the boys at least. But each time it was the bulging face of the saloon keeper that peered in at him by the sickly light of a tallow candle and each time the joyful bark that trembled in Buck's throat was twisted into a savage growl. But the saloon keeper let him alone, and in the morning four men entered and picked up the crate. More tormentors, Buck decided, for they were evil-looking creatures, ragged and unkempt, and he stormed and raged at them through the bars. They only laughed and poked sticks at him, which he promptly assailed with his teeth till he realised that that was what they wanted. Whereupon he lay down sullenly and allowed the crate to be lifted into the wagon. Then he and the crate in which he was imprisoned began a passage through many hands. Clerks in the express office took charge of him. He was carted about in another wagon. A truck carried him with an assortment of boxes and parcels. Upon a ferry steamer, he was trucked off the steamer into a great railway depot and finally he was deposited in an express car. For two days and nights this express car was dragged along at the tail of shrieking locomotives, and for two days and nights Buck neither ate nor drank. In his anger he had met the first advances of the express messengers with growls, and they had retaliated by teasing him. When he flung himself against the bars, quivering and frothing, they laughed at him and taunted him. They growled and barked, and like detestable dogs, mewed and flapped their arms and crowed. It was all very silly, he knew, but therefore the more outraged to his dignity and his anger waxed and waxed. He did not mind the hunger so much, but the lack of water caused him severe suffering and fanned his wrath to fever pitch. For that matter, high-strung and finely sensitive, the ill-treatment had flung him into a fever which was fed by inflammation of his parched and swollen throat and tongue. 
he was glad for one thing. The rope was off his neck. That had given him an unfair advantage, but now that it was off, he would show them. They would never get another rope around his neck. Upon that, he was resolved. For two days and nights, he neither ate nor drank. And during those two days and nights of torment, he accumulated a fund of wrath that boded ill for whoever first fell foul of him. His eyes turned bloodshot and he was metamorphosed into a raging fiend. So changed was he that the judge himself would not have recognised him and the express messengers breathed with relief when they bundled him off the train at Seattle. Four men gingerly carried the crate from the wagon into a small, high-walled backyard. A stout man with a red sweater that sagged generously at the neck came out and signed the book for the driver, that was the man Buck divined, the next tormentor, and he hurled himself savagely against the bars. The man smiled grimly and brought a hatchet and a club. You ain't going to take him out now, the driver asked. Sure, the man replied, driving the hatchet into the crate for a pry. There was an instantaneous scattering of the four men who had carried it in, and from safe perches on top of the wall, they prepared to watch the performance. Buck rushed at the splintering wood, sinking his teeth into it, surging and wrestling with it. Wherever the hatchet fell on the outside, he was there on the inside, snarling and growling, as furiously anxious to get out as the man in the red sweater was calmly intent on getting him out. Now, you red-eyed devil, he said, when he had made an opening sufficient for the passage of Buck's body. At the same time, he dropped the hatchet and shifted the club to his right hand. Now and again, men came, strangers who talked excitedly, weedingly, and in all kinds of fashions to the man in the red sweater. And at such times that money passed between them, the strangers took one or more of the dogs away with them. Buck wondered where they went for they never came back. But the fear of the future was strong upon him, and he was glad each time when he was not selected. Yet his time came in the end, in the form of a little weasened man who spat broken English, and many strange and uncouth exclamations which Buck could not understand. Sacred M, he cried, 
when his eyes lit upon Buck. Dat one damn bully dog, eh? How much? Three hundred, and a present at that, was the prompt reply of the man in the red sweater. And seems it's government money you got, no kick coming, eh, Perrault? Perrault grinned. Considering that the price of dogs had been boomed skyward by the unwanted demand, it was not an unfair sum for so fine an animal. The Canadian government would be no loser, nor would its dispatches travel the slower. Perrault knew dogs, and when he looked at Bark, he knew that he was one in a thousand. One in ten thousand, he commented mentally. Buck saw money pass between them, and was not surprised when Curly, a good-natured Newfoundland, and he were led away by the little weasened man. That was the last he saw of the man in the red sweater, and as Curly and he looked at receding Seattle from the deck of the Nawal, it was the last time he saw the warm Southland. Curly and he were taken below by Perrault, and turned over to a giant called Francois. Perrault was a French-Canadian and swarthy, but Francois was a French-Canadian and twice as swarthy. They were a new kind of men to Buck, of which he was destined to see many more. And while he developed no affection for them, he nonetheless grew honestly to respect them. He speedily learned that Perrault and Francois were fair men, calm and impartial in administering justice, and too wise in the way of dogs to be fooled by dogs. In the tween decks of the Nahual, Buck and Curly joined two other dogs. One of them was a big, snow-white fellow from Spitsbergen, who had been brought away by a whaling captain, and who had later accompanied a geological survey into the Barrens. He was friendly in a treacherous sort of way, smiling into one's face the while he meditated some underhand trick, as, for instance, when he stole from Buck's food at the first meal. As Buck sprang to punish him, the lash of Francois's whip sang through the air, reaching the culprit first, and nothing remained to Buck but to recover the bone. That was fair of Francois, he decided, and the half-breed began his rise in Buck's estimation. The other dog made no advances, nor received any. Also, he did not attempt to steal from the newcomers. He was a gloomy, morose fellow, and he showed Curly plainly that all he desired was to be left alone, and further, that there would be trouble if he were not left alone. 
Dave he was called, and he ate and slept, or yawned between times, and took interest in nothing, not even the Nahuals crossed Queen Charlotte Sound and rolled and pitched and bucked like a thing possessed. When Buck and Curly grew excited, half wild with fear, he raised his head as though annoyed, favoured them with an incurious glance, yawned and went to sleep again. Day and night the ship throbbed to the tireless pulse of the propeller, and though one day was very like another, it was apparent to Buck that the weather was steadily growing colder. At last, one morning, the propeller was quiet, and the narwhal was pervaded with an atmosphere of excitement. He felt it, as did the other dogs, and knew that a change was at hand. Francois leashed them and brought them on deck. At the first step upon the cold surface, Buck's feet sank into a white, mushy, something very like mud. He sprang back with a snort. More of this white stuff was falling through the air. He shook himself, but more of it fell upon him. He sniffed it curiously, then licked up some with his tongue. It bit like fire, and the next instant was gone. This puzzled him. He tried it again, with the same result. The onlookers laughed uproariously, and he felt ashamed. He knew not why, for it was the first his time of seeing snow. Chapter 2 The Law of Club and Fang Buck's first day on the day beach was like a nightmare. Every hour was filled with shock and surprise. He had been suddenly jerked from the heart of civilization and flung into the heart of things primordial. No lazy, sun-kissed life was this, with nothing to do but loaf and be bored. Here was neither peace nor rest, nor a moment's safety. All was confusion and action, and every moment life and limb were in peril. There was imperative need to be constantly alert, for these dogs and men were not town dogs and men. They were savages, all of them who knew no law but the law of club and fang. He had never seen dogs fight as these wolfish creatures fought, and his first experience taught him an unforgettable lesson. It is true, it was a vicarious experience, else he would not have lived to profit by it. Curly was the victim, they were camped near the log store where she, in her friendly way, made advances to a husky dog the size of a full-grown wolf, though not half so large as she. 
There was no warning, only a leap in like a flash, a metallic clip of teeth, a leap out equally swift, and Curly's face was ripped open from eye to jaw. It was the wolf manner of fighting, to strike and leap away, but there was more to it than this. Thirty or forty huskies ran to the spot and surrounded the combatants in an intent and silent circle. Buck did not comprehend that silent intentness, nor the eager way with which they were licking their chops. Curly rushed her antagonist, who struck again and leaped aside. He met her next rush with his chest, in a peculiar fashion that tumbled her off her feet. She never regained them. This was what the onlooking huskies had waited for. They closed in upon her, snarling and yelping, and she was buried screaming away. So sudden was it, and so unexpected, that Buck was taken aback. He saw Spitz run out his scarlet tongue in a way he had of laughing, and he saw Francois, swinging an axe, spring into the mess of dogs. Three men with clubs were helping him to scatter them. It did not take long. Two minutes from the time Curly went down, the last of her assailants were clubbed off. But she lay there, and it took a long time for her to get up. Before he had recovered from the shock caused by the situation, he received another shock. Francois fastened upon him an arrangement of straps and buckles. It was a harness, such as he had seen the grooms put on the horses at home. And as he had seen horses work, so he was to work, hauling Francois on a sled to the forest that fringed the valley, and returning with a load of firewood. Though his dignity was sorely hurt by thus being made a draught animal, he was too wise to rebel. He buckled down with a will and did his best, though it was all new and strange. Francois was stern, demanding instant obedience, and by virtue of his whip, receiving instant obedience, while Dave, who was an experienced wheeler, nipped Buck's hind quarters whenever he was in error. Spitz was the leader, likewise experienced, and while he could not always get at Buck, he growled sharp reproof now and again, or cunningly threw his weight in the traces to jerk Buck into the way he should go. Buck learned easily, and under the combined tuition of his two mates and Francois, made remarkable progress. Here they returned to camp, he knew enough to stop at hoe, and go ahead at marsh, to swing wide on the bends, 
and to keep clear of the wheeler when the loaded sled shot downhill at their heels. And that concludes tonight's readings. I hope you're feeling a little drowsy. If you're not quite tired yet, please feel free to listen to another episode. In the meantime, good night.